1: Check out JoinColossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for
0: investment decisions.
1: This is Dom Cook and today we're breaking down Bayern Munich. Typically when you think of football or soccer, you think of the English Premier League clubs or clubs in Spain like Real Madrid and Barcelona. But as we thought about which club would be best to break down first, Bayern Munich stood out. It is Germany's most successful football club by a long way. And by whatever measure you use, it is also one of the world's biggest. But importantly for us, it makes a great case for being the best run club in football. It has an enterprise value close to €3 billion. It has no debt. It has been profitable for three decades and is majority owned by fans. Plus, it's got a trophy cabinet to rival any club in the world. Bayern has won a record 32 national Bundesliga titles, including the last 10 in a row, and it's won the prestigious Champions League six times. To break down the business behind the club, I'm joined by Marie Schultebockham, a football journalist and Munich resident. Please enjoy this business breakdown of FC Bayern Munich. <laughs> So Marie, I think the right place to start is with a quick overview of how successful Bayern Munich is, both on and off the pitch. We could have chosen a dozen or so world's famous football clubs. We've gone with Germany's biggest. Can you give us an overview of what makes this football club special? How much have they won? How much money do they make? How many fans do they have? Some
0: key markers for context. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about Bayern Munich. And I'm sitting in Munich right now looking out over the stadium. Bayern, by many measures, is the largest, not just football club, but sports organization in the world. They have 300,000 fee-paying members. That alone generates 15 million in revenue because for 26 to 64-year-olds, they pay 60 euros as a membership fee. And that's very symbolic. They get a magazine a month, but it doesn't entitle them to tickets or anything like that. Financially, in 2022, they generated 654 million euros in revenue. And that places Bayern Munich sixth in the international pecking order. If you want to know who leads that, that would be the Premier League title holders, Manchester City, who were first with 731 million euros in revenue. So that's about 80 million more than Bayern and Real Madrid, perhaps the strongest brand in the world's game, is second at 714 million euros. In sporting terms, Bayern first acceded to the Bundesliga in 1965, which was actually the second year of the Bundesliga's founding. They were not a founding team for the founding of the Bundesliga, Germany's domestic top flight the previous year. They asked their Bayern Munich's Munich rival, 1860 Munich, to join. But Bayern got promoted the following year and have not left the Bundesliga since. <laughs> Bayern has never been relegated from the Bundesliga. In those 75 seasons in the Bundesliga that they have been a member, they have won the title a record 32 times. So almost half the seasons were won by Bayern. They've also won the Champions League six times, most recently in 2020. In that pandemic year, they won in Lisbon against PSG. And only Real Madrid and Italy's AC Milan have more European titles.
1: Their sporting success is pretty remarkable. Their trophy cabinet must be enormous. And then to put the cherry on top of that is they've been profitable, I think, for 29 years. And if you look at the covid accounts of most football clubs in the world most of them lost money bayern munich didn't lose money and i think that's kind of remarkable which i guess sets us up for the rest of this conversation the next natural question for me is how have they been able to maintain such a consistent success both on the pitch and off the pitch? You look at the long lineage of famous football clubs, AC Milan, Manchester United, Barcelona at the moment. There's a very long list of those big teams that have gone through difficult spells, either on the pitch or off the pitch. What is it that's really helped Bayern Munich be so successful for such a long period of time?
0: I think the answer is threefold, but I'll start with the part that is most money-oriented. They're very prudent and they're very frugal in how they handle money to put it in layman's terms, they do not spend what they do not have. And that is exceptional in European football. (laughs) You only need to look at Barcelona or some English teams. But Bayern Munich is completely debt-free. As you mentioned, 2022 was their 30th year of making a net profit in a row. And Jörg Wacker, He's the vice president and board member for marketing at Bayern Munich, marketing and development. He said in a podcast appearance recently that the recipe for success is simply no oligarchs, no shakes, and no states. They don't want foreign entities to be stakeholders and inject the club with quick money. They're playing the long game, which is not as... Sexy and instantly gratifying as being able to sign Neymar or Kylian Mbappé or Messi. It's a slow build, but they started that slow build, as we talked about, decades ago. (laughs) So it's bearing fruits. The ownership structure at Bayern, I'm sure we'll get more into that, but 75% of Bayern Munich is owned by the club. And the remaining 25% are owned by German conglomerates who are all based in Bavaria, but have a global reach. So that's an equal measure, all at 8.33% Adidas, Audi, and Allianz insurance. The more human answers to your question about the consistent success, you said consistency, I say continuity. And Bayern Munich has had incredible continuity in leadership, and not symbolic leadership of former players, but real financial leadership as uh, chairman of the board, as president, as sporting director, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, who won the Euros and the World Cup with Germany while he was a player and he played for Bayern for a decade. He spent almost three decades in charge of the club. Franz Beckenbauer, the Kaiser of Germany, (laughs) as he is fondly known, led the club as president in the 90s and early 2000s. But the one I really wanted to focus on here is Uli Hoeneß because his story is so unique in world football. He played for Bayern. He's a local boy. He's from Bavaria. He played for Bayern in the 1970s, was very successful, and then had a horrible injury and had to retire his footballing boots at the age of 27. That was in 1979, and Bayern Munich wanted to help him out. And this is something, I mean, not to get all wooey on you, but Bayern is known as a very family-oriented club. Instead of saying, okay, here's your insurance payout or something, they said, look, you have a young family, you are a good player for us, we're going to keep you on the salary bill and support you. And basically, they made him sporting director at the age of 27, and he was a true visionary. Despite having no university education at the time, he really commercialized Bayern and we'll get to it. But Bayern is the most commercially successful European club in terms of percentage of their revenue. And a lot of that started in 1979 with Uli Hoenes, who really explored the potential in terms of sponsorship, merchandise, and He, for example, really saw the Bayern Munich jersey, which is now worth hundreds of millions each year. He saw that for what it is, empty real estate. And prior to him, in German football, every club had an outfitter. So Bayern had Adidas. So they would buy red plain jerseys from Adidas and maybe a stripe would change every season or the shade of red. But that was pretty much it. You just had a top left. You had the Bayern club logo. And on the top right, you had the Adidas logo. And Oli Hoene said, well, what about the rest? And he was the first one to really sell the rest of the jersey, which at the time was completely revolutionary and honestly kind of be hated by the fans because they were like, why should I walk around as a liquor advertisement? (laughs) So I think continuity and leadership as exemplified by Oli Hoene, who retired as club president Four years ago now, in 2019, after 40 years in the club leadership. And then just the fact that, I mean, we hinted at this, but they're very Bavarian. They love their academy. They love using local players who were educated at their academy. And of course, commercially, as we mentioned, 25% of Bayern Munich is owned by three Bavarian companies in Adidas, Allianz, and car manufacturers, Audi. I think it's brave in this day and age to have a club run by former players. And that's still the case, because today Oliver Kahn, the former Germany goalkeeper, and Hassan Salihamidzic, the Bosnian midfielder, who both also played many years for Bayern, they are on top of the company, and they're supported in that by Herbert Heiner, the long running adidas boss so he was always on the board and now he is president at bayern and of course with his global commercial experience he's a real asset to the club as well
1: yeah the management team is certainly striking i almost think of it like a family-run business that's been owned by the generations <laughs> and obviously the incentive system is very different if you've been a player than if you're running the club purely as a financial business i think that probably speaks to why they don't have any debt and why they've been maybe more conservative than some other clubs over the years. I think you started the answer saying that they don't want any oligarch shakes or states running the business, which links to something at the league level, which is very different to other leagues in the world, which is this idea of 50 plus one. Can you, A, talk from the Bundesliga perspective, which is the league they play in in Germany, at the governance level, what that rule means for clubs in Germany and how that differs to, say, the Premier League or La Liga or Serie A, any of the other European leagues? And then from there, we can talk a bit more about the Bundesliga
0: fifty plus one was introduced in the 1990s because this was a decade where so much new money flushed into football this was in across europe very much the age of tv deals and as a result some leagues and some clubs were very quick to profit and others not so much so in the uk with the english premier league for example which was only founded as an entity around the same time in the 90s this was a market perfect for tv deals because culturally english households don't think about paying for extra tv in germany that's not really a thing it's, you would get mocked for having sky it would be like ooh that's a bit lavish culturally sky really flooded the english premier league with money and obviously the other leagues looked at that and they were like we want that too and that happened in germany as well but you didn't have the same market, basically, because not as many households were willing to pay money to have that, to receive games and watch individual games live. And that continues to this day. And so this was a age where, for example, Dortmund, they almost went bankrupt in the early 2000s because they had overspent so much on transfer fees and player salaries to keep up with the offers being made abroad. And 50 Plus One was established to protect clubs from bankruptcy and from maybe tumultuous investors or short-sighted investors who kind of want to use football, in my opinion, misguidedly as a money printing machine, because we all know that very few football clubs, if any, are truly profitable year on year, this being one. But 50 plus one, it's very simple. It refers to the fact that 50% plus 1%, so a slight majority of any professional German football club, has to be owned by the club themselves. In most cases, that means owned by the members, because Germany has this membership system where the members run the clubs, at least symbolically, through shareholders' meetings, members' meetings, and they elect the president of the club. So it's almost like a democracy. Bayern Munich sticks to that. And it's not like they've sold 49% of their company, as 50 plus one would entitle any club to do. But they've sold 25% of their company to three local companies, longstanding partners, longstanding sponsors.
1: A few other questions about the Bundesliga in general. And you kind of mentioned that the Premier League has monetized at a higher rate for various different cultural reasons than the Bundesliga. I think the Bundesliga's annual rights deal is 1.38 billion euros which compares to $4 for the Premier League. What are the other major differences between the Bundesliga and, say, the Premier League or any of the other European leagues that you think are worth touching on?
0: First of all, it's worth mentioning that the Bundesliga has 18 clubs rather than 20. Of those 18, four, the top four each season, qualify for the coming season's Champions League. Two teams get relegated, so 17th and 18th place, get relegated after those 34 match days. Every team plays each other twice, once at home and once away. And one team, the 16th, so third from the bottom, they play a relegation game against the third from the top in the second division, the Zweite Bundesliga. Culturally, what's worth mentioning in German football is that the ticket prices are comparatively cheap and that games are mostly sold out especially at the top clubs like Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich has a stadium capacity Allianz Arena of 75,000 fans. And I think it's been sold out for 12 years in a row or something. And so with that in mind, there's a standing section and there are a lot of season tickets where fans go to every home game. And the cheapest standing section season ticket, in my opinion, is cheaper than some game tickets in the Premier League. So... It's €170 a season to go to 18 different home games in the Bundesliga. So it works out as less than €10 to see Bayern Munich, one of the best teams in the world, play, for example, against Borussia Dortmund if you're a season ticket holder. And financial differences, I think the main one, which also explains a little bit why Bayern has won the Bundesliga 10 years in a row... Is that German TV revenue, so domestic TV revenue, is not distributed evenly between the clubs. So, for example, in the past season, Bayern got just through domestic TV rights. So, for the domestic league, so Champions League is a huge multiplier of this. But for the Bundesliga, they received more than 90 million euros a season. And the lowest placed team, the recently promoted Bochum, received 18,18 18 million. So Bayern received five or six times as much as the lower team. It's tough. I think if you're positive, maybe if you're a Bayern sympathizer, you say it's meritocratic. The teams that perform best get the most money. But if you're a neutral fan, you got to ask yourself, doesn't this mean that the divide between the top and the bottom gets larger each year? And Bayern can then acquire... Bochum's best players, for example, because they can pay them a larger salary, they can afford the transfer fees. And those other teams who receive less in TV revenue, of course, they need to get their revenue from somewhere else. Often that means they sell their players, they cash in on the talent on their balance sheets, the legs on their squad, so to speak.
1: Is that different to the Premier League or other European leagues in the distribution of the media rights deals? Is it more equitable in those other leagues?
0: At least for the Premier League, the case is that the TV revenue gets shared equally between the 20 clubs that are a member in that Premier League. Of course, beyond that, the big six, as they called in England, so Tottenham, Arsenal and Chelsea from London, and then from the north, Manchester City, Manchester United and Liverpool. By virtue of competing in Europe year in, year out, they then generate a lot more TV revenue from those European competitions like the Champions League and the Europa League, where the TV deals are orchestrated not by the domestic leagues, but by the UEFA, the European soccer governing body that runs the Champions League and Europa League. That's one of the reasons why those teams are a lot richer in England, but at least domestically. And I think the net positive effect is that you do every season have teams like, for example. Burnley or Fulham or Southampton these aren't all currently doing well but every season or so you have a surprise team in the Premier League that annoys the big six and floats among them at the very top of the table because they can and this is where the European pecking order comes in because a team promoted to the Premier League domestically receives more money from TV rights than Bayern Munich does (laughs) so those teams can then sign the best players from foreign leagues and offer them a salary that's higher than if they played for Borussia Dortmund or Bayer Leverkusen, even in some cases.
1: Yeah, I guess Leicester is the archetypal example there of a team that rose and one disrupted the power players and if you look at Bayern Munich and the rest of the Bundesliga teams it's striking it's such a power law and a number of different measures whether it's social media followers or revenue they're almost twice as large as even the second club in the league I think social media wise they have more followers than the rest of the league combined which is pretty amazing so what I would love to do now is talk about what it takes to run a high performance team like this we kind of see the tip of the iceberg 11 players on a pitch week in week out What goes on behind the scenes to run a team like Bayern Munich at the very top level of football? Talk to me about the first, the squad size, how often they play, the backroom staff, the infrastructure, stadium, training ground, all of that stuff is really interesting to me.
0: Bayern is a big global company. They have more than 1,000 employees as of this year. Of course, most of those employees are based in Munich, but they also have foreign offices in Shanghai, China, and in New York in the US. Of course, although they have a 1,000 employees, 27 of them are professional footballers that are in Bayern's first squad, and 27 of them make up the bulk of the salary sheet.
1: There's another power law at play there.
0: Yeah, exactly. We all contribute to that, of course, because we consume the product. And this leads me to a really good quote, again, by Jörg Wacker, who I quoted earlier, the VP of Marketing and Development at Bayern. And he basically said, and I think of this as a chart with arrows, first, you need a great product. And for Bayern Munich, that means you need a winning club, of course, and you need excitable players that are easy to market abroad. And then that product leads to the brand. So you can only have a strong brand if you have a strong product in the long term. And then the third factor in that leads to new income streams. That's really what they do and that's how they're run. And in Munich, you asked about some of the other projects and how this club is run. They're very experimental. So for example, a few years ago, first, they wanted to acquire an office space with a shop front in the city center to make one of those flagship fan swag stores. And they called it FC Bayern World. And it's around the corner from Marienplatz, the central square in Germany. And then they found out that They originally wanted a thousand square meters of retail space for that. And then they found out that the whole building, which is basically a whole block in prime real estate, middle of Munich, was for sale. They acquired it. And now they have four times that space. So I'm just telling this story as a microcosm of their strategy. Basically, they went in and they asked their partners, Audi, Allianz, Adidas, and Deutsche Telekom to come in on the deal with them. And they also gave them some prime real estate for meetings, conference rooms, executive offices, that kind of thing. And they made 30 boutique hotel rooms. So for VIP guests who come, or if you are in a negotiation for a new deal, you can say, oh, if you come to Bayern from Dubai or from New York or from LA, we'll book you this hotel room in the center of Munich. And they have two restaurants, Bavarian beer hole at the bottom, which is for fans and anyone who wants to kind of really experience Bayern's local culture with the dirndl, the dresses that people wear at Oktoberfest and the big Stein glasses that hold a liter of beer. And then they have an international, very sophisticated restaurant. And all of this is run by Doco, which is a Viennese, so from Austria, from Vienna, one of Europe's largest catering companies who also run all the events and the catering and the food and the hospitality and so on in the Allianz Arena for Bayern. So as you can see, this is kind of like a mini Bayern Munich in the center of town. This is what they do. They just always try and find new revenue streams. Bayern Munich's women's team generated the seventh largest net profit of any European club last season. Barcelona is first in that ranking with 7 million euros and Bayern has made a profit of 1.2 million euros last year. But again, for many years, Bayern didn't really care about the women's team. And then in 2022, at the European competitions in the final, Germany played against England at Wembley Stadium in England. And that game was watched in Germany by 17 million people. And that is more than the German TV viewership of the Men's World Cup in the winter, Germany's game. So it's kind of like a Bayern Munich, sometimes they're not the most progressive of clubs, socially speaking. Bavaria is very Catholic, very conservative. So they're not going to do anything for the sake of it. But once they have facts and figures to guide them, they will go hard and double down on that. And that's exactly what they're doing with the women's team. They also have a fantastic basketball team that has won the German championship. And they're now building a new venue in the Olympia Park for the basketball team. And it's going to be sponsored by SAP, SAP, the German technology provider. So they bought the naming rights for that arena. You can talk about buying and selling players. And they made a net profit on that last year, which is exceptional. If you look at their European competitors, you can talk about those very obvious income streams like ticket sales, TV rights. But as that is happening, they're also always looking for, okay, where's income going to come from in 10 years and 20 years from now?
1: Yeah, it's a good call out. And we'll get to all those main revenue drivers in a second. But there are elements there that make you again, think of This club is kind of a family in Munich. Obviously, they have a huge place that people can come and enjoy Bayern Munich during the week. And then obviously on match day, they can go to the Allianz Arena and watch the team play. And it's also, as you say, important to note that Bayern Munich is not just the football club. It's also the women's team, but then there's also a chess team. There's a basketball team, handball, I think, and a number of other clubs within Bayern Munich. Draw as many people in the city into this sporting club as possible. It's time, I think, now to go into the business model and talk about those big revenue drivers. And really, it is the 11 people on the pitch that bring most of the money into the club. You talked at the outset of the conversation about how they earned €650 million last year. They're probably, by most definitions, the best-run football club in the world. I think there are three major buckets that drive that revenue. Can we just outline them and then we'll go through each one in detail?
0: So we talked about TV revenue. That's known as broadcasting revenue. That's usually the biggest bucket. And then there's commercial revenue, which includes sponsorship and merchandise, I believe. And then there's, of course, match Day ticketing sales.
1: I think it's worth calling out here that COVID has kind of messed these numbers up to a large extent because there was obviously no one allowed in the stadiums during that period. So just on a normal basis or a normal year, how would those three get split out in terms of that 650 million euros? Is it a third, a third, a third? Or is there one driving more revenue than the other lines?
0: I'm glad you asked because it shows again the vision of Bayern over the past decades where they were often years ahead of other competitors Because to go back to the history books in 1979, when Uli Hoeneß at the age of 27 became sporting director at Bayern Munich after his playing career at the club, one thing that really concerned him was that the key revenue driver at that time, so in the late 70s, early 80s, was match day revenue. And that at the time, so basically ticketing sales, beer sales, fans, scarves, maybe if you want to kindly include that on match days that made for 80%, 8-0. So four-fifths of Bayern's revenue at that time, which is 40 years ago, 40 to 50 years ago, was from match day sales, especially from ticketing. Today, that number is at 14%, 1-4. So that really helped Bayern in the pandemic, as you alluded to, and they had to completely avoid playing at capacity and also selling the VIP sections, which for them hospitality, gastronomy is a huge income stream. In the last season for which we have data, which is basically the previous season, so 2021, 2022, that was 68 million euros for Bayern Munich. It has been higher before, but of course that was still influenced a little bit by pandemic restrictions. The highest that it was ever recorded for Bayern was more than 100 million in matchday revenue in the 2017-18 season. But yeah, so that's the smallest stream, which is about 14% of Bayern's revenue these days. The second largest or second smallest income stream is broadcasting in the aforementioned season. So last year, when Bayern did win the German championship, that was 207 million euros that Bayern gained, split, of course, between Bundesliga streaming rights holders, and in Germany that's DAZN, Sky, and of course abroad, for example, that's ESPN Plus in America or BT and Sky in England. And the other half of that broadcasting revenue is, of course, the European game. So when Bayern plays against PSG, of course that's watched in countries the world over, and that money flows back into Bayern's pockets. And Amazon Prime, for example, has entered that market recently in Germany. So they now show a Champions League game every week and they get the top pick of which game they want to show. And then the largest bucket, get to the best at the end, making up more than half of Bayern's total revenue is commercial. In the past season, of the more than 600 million that Bayern generated in revenue, 378 million was commercial. Now, what do we mean by commercial? It includes anything from merchandise, swag, so Bayern fan scarves, Bayern bedding. You can basically buy blankets with the logo, posters, pens, coffee mugs, toasters, all of that. And of course, jerseys is a huge one, but it also includes sponsorships. That for Bayern is a huge part. So I just said the magical number of 378 million, almost 400 million in commercial revenue. And of that, almost 130 million is just generated through the jersey. By that, I mean that small garment that 11 players wear every match day. For the right to be on that jersey or produce that jersey in Adidas's case, there are some big companies that pay a lot of money. So we'll start with Adidas. Or adidas as it's pronounced in american
1: let's go with the german pronunciation because i think that's probably the right way
0: <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah so adidas pay 60 million euros a year to produce bayern's jersey and then you have deutsche Telekom, who just increased their deal from 30 to 45 million a season and they've extended that deal and deutsche Telekom has been bayern's main jersey sponsor for more than a decade And then you have Allianz, We can count this as jersey, but they, of course, pay for the naming rights to Bayern's home grounds, to the stadium at the Allianz Arena. They also pay around 10 million, I think now 13 million a year for that luxury. And lastly, and most controversially, Qatar Airways, the flagship airline from Qatar, where the World Cup was hosted, they pay 20 million euros to be on the sleeve which to me is hilarious because it's just a tiny spot. And that's where they have their airline's logo. And the reason I said that that's controversial is because German fans, the public, and especially the Bayern Munich fans, have heavily, heavily protested that sponsorship in the stadium, at the grounds, on social media, at shareholders' meetings. Before that, it was Lufthansa, a German company, and the Bayern fans have taken issue with... Qatar's stances on human rights, women's rights, gay rights, and of course, it's a state-owned company. So at a club where the fans have a lot to say, the supporters have a big influence over decision-making, that is a controversy.
1: It's really interesting. And I think the thing that strikes me about a lot of these deals that you mentioned, and I think they make the most of any club in the world from commercial partnerships in football anyway, is the long-term nature of these partnerships. Their partnership with Adidas goes back almost like 50, 60 years. You said Deutsche Telekom has been on the shirt for... A decade or so. Their partnership with Audi who is also an investor in the business is long term. I think the strength of these commercial partnerships speaks a little bit to Bayern Munich's place both in Germany and Germany in Europe itself as the biggest economy. And this is by far the biggest team in the biggest economy in Europe. Does that have some influence on how they're able to monetize these commercial relationships at such a high rate?
0: I would say so. Yeah. And thank you for pointing that out. And it's not just that Germany is the wealthiest economy in the European Union and also on the European continent. I think Germany is the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world by GDP. That's a factor, of course. But then within Germany, Germany has 80 million people, and it's a very decentralized country. So if you're in the UK or in France, a lot of young people move to the capital cities to... London and Paris, respectively, because that's where industry and government is centered. In Germany, Berlin, the nation's capital, is actually one of the poorest large cities. And there isn't one economic nucleus or cultural nucleus for the country. It's very divided across places like Stuttgart, which is known for automotive industry, Cologne, which is kind of the media capital of Germany, media and entertainment, Düsseldorf, big in the arts and in finance, Hamburg shipping, you know, a huge international shipping giant, Frankfurt for banking, and Munich. Munich, by any measure, is Germany's wealthiest city. I can praise Bayern for having local supporters and local companies like Allianz, Adidas, and Audi, but that's pretty easy if you have those companies in your backyard. Not many clubs have that luxury. For example, Borussia Dortmund, Bayern's strongest domestic rival, They're from one of the poorest areas in Germany, from the industrial rural valley. And most of that industry is gone. It was always steel and coal and iron. And those industries are all in decline or already completely evaporated. So their local partners are companies like Evonik or RWE energy companies. But although they're also international, those companies, of course, they're not as glittering, shimmering and fastly growing as the aforementioned Bayern Munich partners.
1: They're in the right place, but they've also been able to develop long-term relationships, which I guess is part execution and part luck there. Maybe we can call it that. On the broadcasting point, you mentioned they're earning roughly 200 million euros. Half of that is domestically and half of that is from Europe. I think we should underline exactly how important European football is to almost every top flight European club. And how that gets split in terms of the money they earn from being in European competitions, because I think some of it is the TV rights, but also there's prize money and all sorts of other pieces to that equation in terms of the money they earn from Europe.
0: Definitely. For example, for Bayern, I mentioned the UEFA club coefficient, which usually tracks the performance of European teams in European competitions for the previous five years, literally up to that match day. And in that ranking, Bayern is number one, Man City is second, Chelsea is third, then Liverpool, then Real Madrid, and then Paris Saint-Germain. And it's these arbitrary figures, some mathematical system. So Bayern has, for example, 135,000 points. When you hear a fan say, oh, Bayern is first in Europe, everyone would be like, what? What does that even mean? Usually we equate that with winning the Champions League. It's not just some UEFA Mathing because this turns into literal money. Part of the Champions League revenue broadcasting stream that is distributed by the UEFA is based on that coefficient. And I can pull up some data here from the Champions League TV revenue in the previous season. And Bayern Munich made 115 million euros from Champions League TV revenue. So, Maybe some of our listeners will remember that I said that last year they made about 95 million euros from the Bundesliga revenue. So there you can already see how profitable it is to perform well in the Champions League. Of 115 million, 40 million, more than a third of that was based on the UEFA coefficient. So you can call that performance induced over the past five years. And then another... 40 million of that was by prize money for that season. So, how well they did that season. Last year, they unfortunately were eliminated in the round of 16. But it just goes to show that that money, the Champions League money distributed by UEFA, it really is worth not just qualifying for the competition, but doing well and doing well in the long run. And I know that's more easily said than done, but. As is shown by this club ranking, Bayern has managed to do that in the past five years.
1: I mean, there are obviously very direct benefits in terms of the money you just mentioned, but there are also indirect benefits of the merchandise. We talked about selling $100 million worth of, sort of shirts and various other things around the world. And The Champions League is kind of the holy grail of club football watched all across the world. So it's really important. You see this fight, obviously, to win these leagues, but also the top four or five that make it into the top European competition every year. In many ways, the first objective for these big clubs is to be there by the end of the year. And then obviously, to win the league is the cherry on top of the cake.
0: It all flows into each competition. You know, you play with the same squad in both competitions or in multiple competitions because you have the domestic competitions as well. And looking at this, for example, Wolfsburg, a smaller club, they generated 40 million last year in Champions League revenue. And that's 40 million more. Than any other German team (laughs) made that. So it really does pay off. But of course, this also shows again the uneven distribution and how that trickles down into the local league because Borussia Dortmund last season made 62 million to Bayern's 115 million in the Champions League. And they already also make less by Bundesliga broadcasting revenue. And so it's hard. It's hard for Borussia Dortmund to compete when they have... Fewer money to spend on salaries and on transfer fees. And they're in a weaker economic area in the west of Germany to Bayern's southern location in Munich. It's all interrelated.
1: And it also speaks to, if you're in the Champions League, it's a huge draw to be able to buy players because they're attracted by playing midweek under the bright lights of Europe. Which brings us on to the transfer policy, which is important for every football club. Obviously, there are a few different ways you can go about bringing players in. You can buy them, you can build them up through the academies, or you can borrow them on loan. So if we talk a little bit about Bayern's transfer policy, how have they traditionally operated? Are they buyers, builders, borrowers, and anything that is important on this side of the equation?
0: I think it's currently in transition. Bayern have traditionally been buyers, especially of domestic talent from the Bundesliga, Big names come to mind like Mario Götze, who was acquired from Borussia Dortmund at the age of 19, or Robert Lewandowski, to me, the best European number nine striker that we've seen in the past decade. He also came from Borussia Dortmund. So if you're a big star, either of German nationality or coming through the ranks in Germany at a German club, It's almost inevitable that you will land at Bayern Munich. (laughs) That's the law of the land.
1: Pretty heartbreaking for every other club in Germany.
0: It is. It is. Yeah, it's funny because when great players don't land at Bayern, but they land at Dortmund, the rival, then you often have Bayern people in charge. Grunts be all bitter in the media and they'll say, well, that player doesn't have the Bayern mentality.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And they explain it away.
0: Explain it away and explain away why they didn't snatch up those players. To give you an example there, Jaden Sancho, who became a global star at Borussia Dortmund, Bayern was also interested in him as a youth player. But Borussia Dortmund could say, look, well, we made Christian Pulisic into a star, who then went to Chelsea. We made Mario Götze into a star. We made Marco Reus into a star. And basically, they could promise him a better vision of playing time and experience and European competition. And Then as soon as there was one occasion where Sancho was late to Borussia Dortmund training or something, and this was after he had scored against Bayern Munich and all of that, as soon as there was a littlest criticism, Bayern was like, oh, well, that's why we didn't sign him. (laughs) But of course, squad spaces are limited. So it's not like Bayern can sign 80 players. So of course, they miss out on some and have to make tough decisions. But in the past years, there philosophy has often been to be a developer of young talent. And that's economically motivated by the rise of the Premier League and also the financial influence of new players internationally like Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City, AC Milan, Inter Milan, who have both been flooded by that money. And you asked about loans. Again, this is something that Bayern never did previously, and they've mocked clubs that did do it out of necessity. A loan deal is very good business in many ways. You pay only the salary of a player who's on the balance sheet at another club, loan him for half a season or a season or two years, but you don't have the risk of having to sell that player on if they lose market value or something. And in many cases big clubs really want to get rid of players and then they'll even handle some of the salary of that player. But Bayern previously always said, well, this is basically human trafficking. We don't do this. And that's changed in previous years. So, for example, James Rodriguez, the Colombian starlet who had his big coming out party at the twenty fourteen World Cup, where he scored some beautiful goals, including against Brazil. When he came to Bayern on loan a few years ago, he had more social media followers than the club. So it goes to show the increased influence of individual stars over clubs. And I think we can say that across sports, that some players or drivers, if we were talking about Formula One or any competition, are now bigger commercial entities than franchises. Or clubs, and that's certainly been an interesting development. But that was the case with James Rodriguez. So he came on loan from Real Madrid. Real Madrid continued paying some of his salary because Bayern was like, "Well, we're not paying that huge salary that you guys negotiated." And he helped Bayern win the Champions League. But to go back to the buying of young players, of course, sometimes that works out, like with Kingsley Coman, who scored Bayern's Champions League winning goal three years ago. But You also have signings like Renato Sanchez, who did very well at the Euros for Portugal in 2016 when Portugal won with Cristiano Ronaldo. Renato Sanchez at the time was one of the key players and Bayern signed him for 35 million euros and he never played a key role. He was loaned out to Swansea and was on the bench for Swansea, to give you some context there. So you do make a net loss on players like that, but somehow... I think Bayern's philosophy is if you buy them early enough and give them some minutes in this team, some clubs will be interested in them. And that's what happens. Mark Rocker went to Leeds. He never was a big player at Bayern, but Bayern actually made a profit on his back, if you want to call it that. So there are all these examples where that pays off for them.
1: This kind of speaks again to their savviness as a club, because they've also got the financial clout to buy big names on big salaries but they also if you look over the last 5 to 10 years they tend to be net sellers in the market so they're making more money than they're spending and i think last year they made 55 million euros in the transfer market so you know on a operating revenue base of 600 million that's just shy of 10% which obviously can go both ways for many clubs they tend to be net buyers and losing money in the market so i think that definitely sort of underlines again the business model and the business acumen around this club
0: definitely and actually if i can add to that as calculated by Deloitte, the consultancy and financial analysis firm who do one of the best football business reports each year. Between the years of 2018 and 2022, Bayern had a transfer net income of 12.1 million euros, which doesn't sound like much. You can't really count that as like a revenue stream by any measure. But to give you some comparison, that's across four seasons. And in football, there are two transfer windows each season in the winter and in the summer. And Chelsea in the past winter spent, I think, 450 million pounds, so probably 500 million euros on players alone. So I doubt that they'll have a net transfer income positive anytime soon. (laughs) It's hard to compare, right? It's comparing apples to oranges because again, Bayern is restricted, if you want to call it that, by 50 plus one, and they have to be profitable.
1: And so I think we've run through kind of the revenue side and how Bayern makes money. The flip side of this is the expenses. Unsurprisingly, there's one huge cost item, which tends to be the same for most football clubs. Obviously, that's wages dominated by players. I think from what I could see, the score was valued at 921 million euros, and the wage bill is fairly large. So can you just talk us through exactly how big the wage bill is for the club? and how that compares across the football teams.
0: So for Bayern, the total wage bill for the current season for 2022-23 on the player side, so just the squad of professional players, is £219 million. So that's about €250 million. And then the total staff costs, so including the 1,000-plus employees and the coaching staff and everyone is 350 million euros. Bayern is definitely in the top four of European clubs in terms of player salaries. But just for comparison sakes, for the German league, it's interesting. RB Leipzig, they've played Champions League for three years running. Their salary sheet for their players is 71 million pounds. So that's about a third of Bayern's. And it gives you a bit of an idea of the national versus international scale of these salaries. And it's always important to have a healthy relationship between staff costs and operating revenues. Of course, we talked about the revenue, the annual revenue that Bayern makes being between 600 and 700 million euros each year. And uh, the total staff costs were 350 million euros for this season. So that's actually 58% staff costs versus operating revenues. That's quite healthy. There are, for example, some English clubs in the lower ranks of the table. So your Brightons and West Ham's, and they have a percentage of 85. Everton even has 96% revenue to wages. So that's a very, very slim margin for everything else that it takes to run a professional football club.
1: Whenever you hear about payer wages or staff costs at football clubs, you hear something about financial fair play. Can you explain what financial fair play is and what they're trying to get at?
0: Yeah. So it's a few regulations kind of all packed into one, into this one framework of financial fair play. But the overall goal is to prevent clubs from going bankrupt by overspending. And that can happen very quickly because, of course, unlike other sports, you also have transfer fees that are paid when a player who's still under contract with one club joins another club and oftentimes something that's not very commonly known these large transfer fees are spread over many years so they're basically paid in chunks in installments and that can quickly add up year over year so for example when one club plays champions league one year and then three years later it's in the second division and it's still paying for a champions league striker that's very dangerous so yes fifa and the uefa want clubs to have costs they basically have this max threshold of 70 percent that they want the cost side to be in relation to revenue and if the uefa's new rules also say that if a club has losses of over 60 million euros over three years then there's basically a punishment and a big goal of this whole system is also to reduce the impact of agent fees because there are some very famous footballing agents like Mino Raiola, who died last year, but who had some very, very famous clients, including Erling Haaland, Pini Zahavi, the Israeli agent. And sometimes they make upwards of 20% of a transfer fee in just extra fees for themselves. So if you're talking about a 100 million euro transfer, then that's $20 in the pockets of the agent. So that's also something that they want to target. Another key aspect of it, which I think is worth mentioning, is for youth players. There are now very tight regulations. When a club from one academy joins a player from another academy, there's a minimum fee, although they're not professional yet. But it's basically also to pay the club for their efforts in educating that player. And right now, for example, Cologne, a Bundesliga team in Germany, they are being punished by that reasoning. So they signed a player from Eastern Europe, a striker, a 17-year-old, and they didn't want to pay the 250,000 euro fee to his club, to the academy. So they basically asked the player to quit his club and then signed him as a free agent the next day. And yeah, so you can just see the different hacks that clubs think of. And Cologne now is being punished. They're not allowed to participate in the transfer market in the next two windows. They're not allowed to sign any new players. So it's good that it's starting to be enforced. But of course, you only need to look at the ownership structure or ownership units of some of these clubs. And you're wondering, "Mm, does this really work on a practical level?
1: Yeah, I think clubs are happy to go to court for many years to stretch this stuff out. Is that generally what the punishment is? They're not allowed to go into the transfer market? Or are there other
0: ways that they get punished? Yeah, another way that they can be punished is losing points in the domestic competitions or being disqualified and not allowed entry to the European competitions. So the Champions League, the Europa League and the Conference League. And so far, that's been threatened. For example, Chelsea was punished with that a few years ago, but then they went to court and were able to participate. So it ends up being a bit of lawyering up to get what you want.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no wonder I can't understand what's going on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't think any of us truly understand what's going on. You know, I can summarize these rules as I did, but then how they're applied is always another matter.
1: I've tried to design this conversation around buying strategy, which you mentioned at the top is like most businesses, it's a flywheel, uh, sporting strength, brand and fans, and then financial strength. We went a bit out of order because the financials are so important. But the last piece of this is the fans and Bayern's brand. We've indirectly covered both. But I want to understand how they've managed to cultivate such a big following. You talked about the biggest membership fan base in the world. How have they done that for a team that is very sort of German-centric in many ways? How have they built such a big global base and how do they try and grow their fan base year over year?
0: It's interesting because you can romanticize being a Bavarian club and they certainly do that. The club each year, there's an official outfitter who gives the players their lederhosen and their team photos where they're all holding beer by the beer sponsor, Paulana, and then they go to the the nicest tent at the Oktoberfest. And all of that is very local. But of course, it's already a saturated market. You're not going to acquire many more fans apart from maybe young children in Germany. So you have to look abroad for new fans who are going to strengthen your brand and your balance sheet. And Bayern has done that. As I've mentioned, they have commercial offices on the ground with their own staff. So not run by agencies in New York City and Shanghai. Each summer, they go on international tours where they play exhibition games. So in the previous five years, I believe, they've always gone to the US and played in the international champions competition there against other top European teams. And they've played, for example, at the Green Bay Packers Stadium. It's a very grassroots approach, but on a global level. By grassroots, I mean literally getting your hand and feet dirty, being on the ground and not sending people in suits abroad, but sending the players abroad. They have this system of club legends, some really illustrious names there, like Giovanni Elba, the Brazilian striker, or Lothar Matheus, who won the Ballon d'Or as the last and only German player to get that individual award. And of course, Franz Beckenbauer, all of these club legends At the end of every season, normally in the last home game when Bayern celebrates the German trophy with beer showers and the like, they all appear before the game in their beautiful red blazers, the club blazers. It's all symbolic, but what a lot of people don't know is that those players fly across the world for Bayern throughout the season and do things like open footballing training camps for youth or go to a supporters club in Shanghai when they stream a Bayern game. There'll be like a Bayern legend walking around and drinking beers with the fans abroad. It sounds trivial, but I think these are things that if you're ever at one of these events, because not every Bayern fan can make it to Munich to see a home game. If you get to meet Philipp Lahm or Bastian Schweinsteiger or the older legends, you're going to remember that forever. That really pays off in, I think, brand loyalty which is a rare good in such a fast moving sport, because at the end of the day, success is the best product to get back to that. But one thing that they've done extremely well abroad and at home is helping fan clubs organize. And there are now 4,500 Bayern Munich fan clubs across the world. And those are just official fan clubs that at the very least, emailed Bayern to say, hey, can you send us some swag? We're a Bayern Munich fan club in Indonesia. There are probably way more unofficial fan clubs where people, I don't know, in LA just to meet in a bar among five of them to watch games early in in the morning. But 700 plus, so more than 700 of those are foreign. So you have fan clubs in Malaysia or Uruguay or Mexico. That's very impressive because that's on the ground organization that is supported by Bayern Munich, but not organized by Bayern Munich. So I think that's a huge sign of how successful the club and the brand is in terms of recognition abroad. That's certainly something that they can then cash in on in terms of merchandise and brand experiences and the like.
1: You mentioned kind of winning often is the best way to cultivate a following. And that really seems to be the biggest risk for this business. And it's not something unique to this discussion. It's something that's talked about a lot. I mean, the risk seems to be in some ways that they're too successful for their own good. They've won 10 Bundesligas in a row. You said this year is a lot more competitive, but they're still at top of the table. Is that the biggest risk here that Bayern ultimately makes the Bundesliga an uncompetitive league? That means that the rights deals for the Bundesliga... Weakens over time and they end up sort of killing the competition that they need to be in?
0: It's a lose lose in a way, because if Bayern continues to win, as you say, it weakens the product of the domestic league, which means Bayern is less attractive to watch and less attractive to fans and TV broadcasters. But if they don't win, then they don't win. (laughs) It's kind of like a lose lose in that sense. I mean, Bayern in a way is a bad example, but if you look at sports as a risky investment based on sporting performance. Maybe look at a club like Chelsea, who are currently outside of the qualifying spots for the Champions League. They're really struggling in the domestic league and that might cost them a place in Europe's top flight next year. And it's hard. You have so little control as an investor. You can buy great players but they still have to perform. They have to settle into the culture, into the club, get on with the coach. And that's different from other industries. Football, just by increasing your squad, by signing more players, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are want to get better results. And that's, of course, why it's different in the US. You have the franchise model where you basically buy a ticket to the competition. Your starting fee, which I think for the MLS now, if someone were to join... Is something like $300 million for a new soccer fee, which is to Europeans, that's insane. But to Americans, it's insane that you can get relegated because why would any investor want that? (laughs) This brings us to the European Super League, which was an idea bankrolled by JPMorgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, orchestrated by 10 clubs, many of whom are American-owned and then, of course, abandoned after heavy criticism. And here it's worth mentioning that Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund were both approached to ask if they wanted to become a part of this kind of Super League, which is literally the name that it got given. And both of these German clubs said no. And you could say again, oh, that's really sweet and romantic and loyal to the fans or whatever. But there's a case to be made that both of these teams in their own way profit from playing in Germany and profit from the 50 plus one system because it protects them in a way from a hostile takeover, so to speak. It's all interconnected, as we've said before.
1: European Super League aside, because I think that's a slightly different beast. We'll see what happens, whether that raises its head again. On the league level, is there any discussion about sharing revenue more equitably to increase competition? Or would that be completely unpalatable to teams like Bayern Munich?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... Both. Yes. Bayern doesn't want that. And they have as good an argument as the other clubs because they say, look, we've won the league 10 years in a row and we make a net profit. We're debt free. Why should we be punished for the mismanagement of other clubs? And then the other teams say, look, we're on the brink of bankruptcy. We might have to sell our stadium. We always have to sell our best players. Why can't you help us? Because if you help us, you help yourself, because then the Bundesliga becomes better, German football becomes better. It's tough. I think, although Bayern is the only entity on one side of that argument, they're a big entity. (laughs) And Bayern, again, this goes back to the club legends and how the club is run at the top by former players. They've always done very well politically. So they don't limit themselves to running the club. But for example, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the former chairman of the board, was also president of the European Club Association, which is a group of the biggest 10 European clubs that often act as a lobby. So they'll talk among themselves about what they want to ask the UEFA to do, and then they'll approach the UEFA and then The UEFA, who runs the Champions League, basically has to say yes, because if you have the Champions League without Liverpool, Real Madrid, etc., then no one's going to watch it. So, Rummenigge was very powerful in that arena. For example, now a former Bayern player, Philipp Lahm, is head of the organising committee for the Euros to be hosted next year in Germany in 2024. And the 2006 World Cup, which was hosted in Germany were organized at least officially by Franz Beckenbauer, who at the time was president of FC Bayern Munich. It's all about networking, contacts, and flexing your muscles in the international arena as well.
1: Yeah, they really do seem to be very buttoned up across the board in this business. We always wind down these conversations in the same way, no matter the topic, whether it's a business or a football club. What lessons have you learned from studying this club Bayern Munich and all football or just in general that people can take away from this conversation?
0: I think I'll answer it at least the beginning with the official club slogan of Bayern Munich. It's called Mia san Mia, which sounds more like Latin language, but it's basically colloquial Bavarian. Mia san Mia in German means wir sind wir, which if you have any German listeners, it's kind of like we are who we are. I mean, now I've translated it, but it still sounds cryptic. I think what is meant by this, speaking as a Northern German who's not local to the region, although I do live here now, it means we won't apologize for who we are. You can be jealous of us or criticize us. And we're rich, we're successful, we're Bavarian, and we're fine with that as it is. (laughs) It's a self-understanding or self-image which just explains some of their success and it's not always likable. For example, the Bayern Munich fans One of their chants is Ein Schuss, ein Tor, die Bayern, die Bayern, which means like one shot, one goal, that's Bayern, that's Bayern. And it's arrogant or cocky, but it is exactly how they operate. They are just brutally efficient, fantastically successful, very flashy, very glamorous, and still at their core, very local and very Bavarian, which I think as a region is kind of like the Texas of Germany. Culturally, it's its own unique region with the mountains and the beer breweries and the Oktoberfest and and all of that and the different accent. So as a learning point for what people can take away as a lesson from how Bayern has been so successful for so long, I would say is be true to yourself, be proud and local and believe in your roots, although that's not always very sexy. Invest in your academy Try to generate your own talent, because that's going to be a huge identification factor for the fans. They're going to hugely support your club. If you have some local players who talk like them and dress like them, you'll gain the trust and loyalty and also the patience of your fans more than if you just buy a Neymar every season or so. And it's things that are not glamorous. Players like Thiago, who now doesn't play there anymore, he plays it with Liverpool, or Robert Lewandowski who is now at Barcelona, these world stars every fall drive to local breweries in the middle of nowhere or to high school gyms. And they visit these local fan clubs, of which I mentioned there are 4,500 in the world. And they all visit, sometimes they drive three hours to the north of Bavaria to visit a fan club at a local casino or something. And then they'll dance with old ladies and... Receive collages handmade by the fans. And I think all of these players probably are like, oh, do I really have to do this? But then once they're there, they're also going to remember that because they'll play for other big teams, perhaps over their lifetime. But coming so face to face with what this club means locally for the region, for the supporters, it's unique in this day and age where trainings are often closed to fans. And there's video analysis and spies of different teams and players live in different areas and to the fans and really are shielded. Bayern Munich is not like that. And they very cleverly monetize not being like that. (laughs) It's part of that brand and part of that image. And somehow that's an image and a brand and a club that people... As far away as shanghai or new york want to be a part of
1: yeah it's fascinating the big thing for me from this conversation is almost kind of like the founder mentality that pervades the whole of the club from the players up i think i remember reading once manchester united players under the ear of sir alex ferguson when they were extremely successful they talked about how he made sure that they treated every person in the club from the chef all the way to their boss himself the very same way one club and together you win and you lose this has been a fascinating discussion about probably the best-run football club in the world, I might argue. So thank you so much for walking us through it.
0: Thank you for having me. And if you're listening, look up Mia San Mia, because it's kind of the recipe, in my opinion, to Bayern Munich's success. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out
1: joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.